Welcome to Just Us and the Climate, a podcast by the Climate Justice Coalition, where we bring climate change back down to earth and show how it's not only a crisis, but an opportunity to build a better, more just world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Just Us and the Climate podcast. My name is Jennifer Wells, please do call me Jen, and I work for Amnesty International South Africa as our campaigner. At Amnesty, we conduct research, we do advocacy and campaign on various human rights issues around the world. And here at home in South Africa, one of the topics we focus on is the climate. We believe the climate crisis is as much a human rights issue as it is an environmental one, as it affects so many of our rights, including the right to life, health, housing, dignity and environment. Amnesty International South Africa is also part of the Climate Justice Coalition. Today's episode will be taking a deep dive into the impact climate change has on the right to water, which is a human right, and in particular the right to water and its impact on women. The right to water is enshrined in our constitution, however we know that it's still not enjoyed by so many in this country. Is climate change impacting our water? What does it mean to be a water-scarce country? How is the right to water enjoyed differently by different genders? To answer these questions, I have with me today two wonderful women from the Centre for Environmental Rights and recent authors of a brilliant article published in the Daily Maverick titled Protecting Water Means Protecting Women. To my left, I have Nabila, who is an attorney in the mining programme at the Centre for Environmental Rights. And to my right, I have Tatenda, who's a candidate attorney at the Centre for Environmental Rights. Welcome, both of you, and thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thank Thank you you. for having us, Jen. It's a pleasure. So I want to just introduce Nabila a little bit here. So (laughs) I asked you to fill out a couple of questions, and these are the responses I had. Nabila would describe herself as driven. But others, her friends and family, I'm assuming, would describe her as fierce or feisty. Her go-to karaoke song is I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor. If she could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, it would be Mama Winnie Mandela. Tell me a little bit more about that. Why did you choose to have dinner with her? Well... You know, it was quite a difficult question to answer because there are so many people that you'd want to have dinner with or an hour of their time. And I've always held a particular fascination with Mamwini Mandela and admired her for the struggles that she's been through in her life. Um, During apartheid, um, her struggles as a woman, as a mother, um, as an activist um, has been something that has inspired me how she's overcome it. And also the way she was treated subsequently as a woman um, post-1994. It it, it was as if the struggles that she had been through had been washed away in a way. Um, And she wasn't given the recognition that I feel she deserves. She's an inspiration to so many women of what it is to mean. When you say you strike a woman, you strike a rock, she is what a rock is. Or was at least. Um, so I'd love to hear more of her story, um, the past years uh, before she passed on, 
and just you know connect with her woman to woman that's something that um drew me to her oh i think that's a fantastic answer and i could definitely think that that would be a brilliant dinner to have and conversation that would that would happen so I'm moving on to Tatenda, <laughs> her go-to karaoke song. You're going to have to say it out loud. Call me maybe. <laughs> Call me maybe. <laughs> you would describe yourself as chilled, but others would describe you as focused. If you had one wish, it would be for the world to be a better place. One word to describe Greta Thunberg, courageous. I think that that's a really great word. And and when I asked you what inspired you to want to work in the environmental field, you said, the fact that our lives are dependent on the environment and yet we always treat the environment as an afterthought is a really poignant sentence. And do you want to elaborate on that a little bit more? Yes, Jen. Um, what inspired me is as I was growing up, I was interested in human rights law, mainly because I'm from Zimbabwe and my parents were working in South Africa. So I used to, you know, migrate from Zimbabwe to South Africa a lot of times. And, you know, I did first some xenophobic attacks and that got me into thinking like, what is the law saying in South Africa about foreigners? Do we not have rights as well? Or they're just, you know, particular to South Africans. So that generally got me into human rights law. But the more I got into it, the more I realized that actually, there's this human right that we all have, but we all take for granted because we think other rights are more important. And that was the right to an environment. So I started thinking more about it, like what does the environment do to us as humans? What, what does it give to us? And what is our duty as humans to the environment? And I actually realized that we get a lot from the environment, but we're not so mindful of it. So we start to neglect it. But then when we neglect it, it actually affects us as human beings because we are dependent on it as much as it also relies on us to protect it. So that's where that inspiration came from. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of what Amnesty's whole thinking and the connection that we've made between the environment and climate change and human rights is that there are no human rights on a dead planet. You know, if we don't have a planet to look after, to live off, then we can't enjoy right to life, right to dignity, all of those rights that come with it. So huge intersection. Um, so yeah, really interesting to know that that's what kind of brought you on this path. So I wanted to begin by just kind of starting from the beginning. So finding out if you could tell us a little bit more about the legal framework surrounding the right to water in South Africa. So the right to uh, water starts from our constitution, the Constitution of the Republic of South Africa, which is the underpinning document of all the uh, constitutional rights that we hold. And in the Bill of Rights, which is the chapter that contains our fundamental rights that we are entitled to, the right to access to water can be found in two instances. It can be found in Section 271B, which is the right to access to basic water supply and basic water sanitation and if you go then to section 27.2 of the constitution the state is obliged to ensure the progressive realization of that right which means that they have to take steps to make sure that the right to basic water supply and sanitation is realized then 
That right is then underpinned in Section 24 of the Constitution, which is the right to a healthy environment. And by that, we can interpret that to include, you know, the right of access to clean water, to constant water supply, to the very basic a thing that allows us to function day to day, which we've learned now from COVID-19, you know, what has been the most basic way for you to be um, protecting yourself against COVID-19? Washing your hands. How can you do that if you don't have water? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's been a huge realization. Do you want to talk more to what we've realized from COVID about this? Yeah, um, what we've realized is that a lot of people do not actually have the water that is required to wash their hands and, you know, just basic sanitation services. So, for example, people in the rural areas, especially women, they already have a daily burden to go and fetch water for food, to drink and to cup for their crops. But then now with the COVID-19 pandemic, what has happened is that they're not only fetching water for that, they're fishing it for their hands as well. And that means that if, for example, someone is traveling four times to get water, they now need to add a fifth journey. Absolutely. And then also because the pandemic spreads so fast, what normally happens is when people go fetch water, they're going to wait in long queues. And now with the social distancing, it's not only going to take longer to get water, but then how do you socially distance in a space where it's probably overcrowded at the borehole or wherever they're fetching the water. So this pandemic has really made us realize a lot of the faults in our systems and what needs to happen to change things going forward. Absolutely. To what extent in South Africa do you think that this right is realized? So you talked, Nabila, you talked about how there are actually about three different sections in our constitution or spaces in this document that speak to the right to water. To what extent is is that right realized in this country? So if I can just add to that sort of legal protective framework that um, has been built on in the constitution, we know that legislation follows often um, from the realization of constitutional rights where the government tries to put in practical when you think of legislation, you think of cons- the constitutional principles being the what you ought to do and the legislation being the how you're going to do it. Then the regulations, we can <laughs> go a bit further there, <laughs> saying the practical steps that you have to be implementing. So in terms of legislation, we have the National Water Act and we have the Water Services Act right and they sort of deal with two different issues we have national water act protecting our water resources in essence providing for certain water uses that you have to get licenses for for example mining your water services act looks at the provision of water and water sanitation so now we have that governing framework and now we need to look at how is that actually implemented on the ground and how is that realized we know that when it comes to water uses and water sources, South Africa is also a very, our economy is very extractive industries based uh, focus. So often water use licenses are granted to mines. And although the water use, the National Water Act does provide certain conditions that have to be met in order to, to grant the water use licenses, when it comes down to it, when those water use licenses are, are granted on the ground, 
it does jeopardize people's water supply. So yes, there's this legislation that says we must protect water sources, but then when it's implemented and mines, for example, or other plants are given water use licenses, what happens in reality is that people's water sources are then contaminated, leading to their their right to basic water being compromised. Sure. So the, the actual full realization of that right is compromised then. Sure. So during this COVID pandemic, we've seen Minister of Water and Sanitation Lindiwe Susulu promise to deliver these water tanks in response to our shortage of clean, reliable water. Has that happened? Is it enough? Is it enough that we are that she has promised these water tanks? And is it a sustainable solution? I think it has happened in some areas, but not all areas because there have been reports of places where there's still no water tank is being delivered, or when they deliver them, they're not sufficient for the people who rely on that water. So if you look at the work that the Water Caucus is doing, you find that there's so many communities in South Africa who even up until today, that still haven't even received those water tankers, despite numerous follow-ups with the department to provide them with water. So it is a solution for now, but it's not a sustainable solution in the long term. They just need to make sure that people have this water all the time. They don't need to rely on water tankers and whenever they're going to be delivered, they should just have the water resource. And I think part of it is in planning, right? Like, for example, when you're planning on settlement, is there nearby water source so that people have this water resource close by and they don't have to rely on someone bringing it to them. Sure. So we we often hear that South Africa is a water-scarce country. And in fact, in your article, you said that South Africa is ranked as the 30th most water-scarce country in the world. What does this mean? What's the, what's the difference between water short and water scarce? With regards to water scarcity, it's about the amount of rainfall that you receive and in terms of South Africa the rainfall that we receive is so low so that means that a lot of our areas do not receive water and also that also means that in terms of distribution some areas receive a lot of rainfall which means they've got a high water yield and other areas they don't so that imbalance in terms of who gets water and who doesn't also adds to the scarcity and also, but also the fact that how much water do you receive annually when it rains? South Africa is one of the countries that receive the lowest rainfall. So is climate change making this worse then? It adds to it. So there is a climate change dimension to it because, for example, the more the earth heats up, that means it impacts on the amount of water we're going to receive. Some areas will continue to receive more water, while other areas will get droughts. So it does play a big role in terms of water scarcity. But however, water scarcity is not just a physical phenomenon. So in as much as climate change adds to it, there's also a part in which humans play in water scarcity. So in terms of the decisions that we make in using water resources, if we've mismanaged water resources, Mm -hmm. then that means that there's a certain portion of our water that Mm -hmm. people can't use and that leads to scarcity. And I believe that as as a country, we struggle with the mismanagement of water. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. I think that I think most recently um, it's been found that there've been alleged fraudulent activities within the Department of Water and Sanitation. I say alleged because, you know, we must cover ourselves. <laughs> but I think, yeah, as the tender says, that plays a big, big role in it. Because if you already have factors against you, such as climate change and, and water scarcity in terms of our rainfall generally, what you do with what you have has to be incredibly careful. You have to be uh, you have to have people on the ground who are attuned to the realities faced by South Africans and the majority of South Africans who, uh, where they live, the infrastructure that they have access to in terms of water, what our general water resource infrastructure is in terms of um, you know, gathering water, how that's going to be distributed to people. You, have to, you actually have to have people who are attuned to that, who, who will be able to make the best decisions for the public at large, but not only the public at large, but those who are most direly affected by lack of access to resources. So what can we do to better protect and preserve the water that we do have? You know, it goes to a number of levels. It goes to how do we protect our water sources itself? We've done a lot of work on strategic water source areas. And when we say strategic water source areas, we mean about 8 to 10 percent of the country that is accountable for 50 percent of our water supply. Um, and those are located across the country. But just think about it in terms of the percentage and how much how much compromising those water sources might lead to affecting our supply. Um, so we need to provide uh, protection of them in the form of legislation, you know, like making sure that anything that happens that may compromise those areas are strongly guarded against. And that would be, yeah, like I said, protection in the form of legislation. It would also be awareness ar around the need to protect our resources and why this is important. So um, it's very difficult to conceptualize, you know, what it will mean 30 or 40 years down the line for decisions that are made now, you know. So I think trying to make that tangible to decision makers sure. um, is an important factor. And whose responsibility that is, whether it's us as civil society or whether it's decision makers themselves who need to have that sort of foresight is also something that needs to be considered. There also needs to be a greater understanding of people's lived realities. It's very easy to be making decisions higher up if you're not attuned to people on the ground. Something can look good on paper, but when you look at people, how it will affect people's lived realities, then that is another story. So that also means including people on the grassroots activists and people on the ground, the, their voices in decision making. Yeah, also just to add to Nabila's point, one of the things that we can do is really around how we plan around our water resources and good management of it. Because if we poorly manage it, it's not only about funds around water resources and infrastructure, but then it's also around the infrastructure itself. How do you maintain it? Because if it's not well maintained, it's going to lead to leakages and all that, and we're losing water. So the need for good management in water resources, but also 
the decisions that we make, just like what Nabila was saying, they need to be very, very like, they need to take into account the impacts of polysemics. So for example, before authorizing activities that are water intensive and they've got the potential of polluting our water resources, do we really want to do this or is it something we can avoid? So those are kind of the kind of questions they're supposed to be asking themselves before they make such decisions because at the end of the day, you can make such a decision and then we don't have water and what is it for? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I think, you know, living in the reality that we do now under COVID-19, and if we had to, it's very difficult to ask this question, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, If we had had better water infrastructure, better water provision, um, better protection of our sources, which might be a longer term solution, but those basic things of access to clean running water and access to sanitation, would we be in a different position than what we had now? If if you could re- realistically say to people, wash your hands every day, wash your hands after every single activity, and people say, sure, I can do that because I have water when I turn on the tap at my home. Would would that not? Would we have been in a different situation? I think that's an important question to ask. Absolutely, and that speaks to the right to life. You know, would we have? Would more lives have been saved during COVID in South Africa if we had had running water? Absolutely, undoubtedly. You both, I want to get into the discussion now about the impacts on women. So you both recently co-authored a brilliant piece on the impact of water on women in South Africa. So tell us more about the burden that women bear, this burden that a lack of water places on women in South Africa and young girls, I'm sure, too. Like as I mentioned earlier, women are especially in rural areas, they are the primary caregivers in their households. So that means that they do a lot of the chores required at home and they also need to take care of everybody at home. So when it comes to water, you find that a lot of the women they have to go and fetch water and they do this some some people have to wake up very early to get to the place where they get the water because it's quite far from where they stay. And that places a burden on them because just waking up early to walk like five kilometers just to get water and you're probably not going to be the first person to get there depending on what the water source is actually. So if it's a borehole, you're not going to be the first person sometimes. So you're going to have to wait in a queue. So that means you might spend at least eight hours of your day just trying to fetch water. And depending on what you're using to just go there to get the water, some people have to go on numerous trips. So some have to go like three, four times in a day just to go and fetch water. And then for some people that live, say, where there are rivers where you know, normally in, in villages, rivers are used for so many things. They're not just for water, for consumption by human beings. Also, livestock use that water. People go there to bath. They go there to do whatever in the river, swimming there. So that water on its own is not really in good condition because of all the activities that are taking place around it. So now when they collect this water after, I don't know how many hours they have taken, they go back home. They now need to make sure that this water is fit for them to drink. That's another process that takes up their time. So if you really want to think about the amount of time that they spend in collecting water, 
and what else they have to do during the day. One of the impacts of this is you ask yourself a question, at what point do they have the time to develop themselves? You know, at what point do these girls, if they're girls involved, at what point do they have to go to school? Are they missing classes? And how much of it are they missing? Because that impacts on their growth as well. And if it's elderly women, there are some impacts to their health, especially the elderly, the pregnant women that have to carry these heavy buckets on their head going back home. And that impacts on their health. So there are a lot of impacts. And even in the journey itself, some people pass through dangerous spaces and they can be sexually violated during that process. So all these things, it's something that women have to face every single time they have to go and collect water. And if you look at the research that women does, it does establish all these impacts on women. With some women telling their stories that we have to go and collect water and we're being violated along the way. And girls telling their stories that I have to go collect water in the morning and then I have to rush back home to prepare for school. And sometimes they're late for school. And all these things, like some people are progressing, but you are not progressing because there's this one aspect in your life that you have to take care of before you even think about progression. So it is a heavy burden that everybody has to consider. Yeah, and if I can just come in on the one point that Tatenda make, which is that these insights come from, that we've relied on, come from the very important work that women, an NGO working with women in areas affected by extractive industries, that insight comes around the stories that they tell about the hardships that they've been facing for years predating COVID-19, which has only been exacerbated by COVID-19. So you can imagine that if, if things were already dire, what the situation is like now. And these stories can be told by us because we know civil society listens to it. But these stories need to be heard by decision makers. And the important thing would be to provide platforms not only for civil society organizations such as the Center for Environmental Rights within the parliamentary processes, um, which we are quite robust in, but for grassroots activists to be able to make these submissions to parliament, you know, you have to admire the work done by, for example, the South African Water Caucus and SAFSI writing numerous letters to Minister Lindiwe Mazibuka. And some of them have gone unanswered. In some instances, there's been a level of success where your letter will have been written and then water tankers will have been provided in a certain area. But in a number of areas there have been there's been no success so you can have these letters written but how are we going to make sure that people's stories are told directly um, because that's the only way I think that there might be some level of accountability. So we actually as Amnesty started collecting and we also worked with women to get some testimonies and then we recently put out a call to the public to submit your experiences of water or lack of water. And so we've been receiving videos um, sent in by people in very rural communities um, depicting their situation. And it's exactly what you guys are talking about, about women having to stand in long queues in when they open their tap to get water out, nothing comes out. Them having to ration their water and 
Absolutely. It's it's then what do we do with these stories? How do we make these these collect these testimonies and get them really shown? And even if they are shown, you know, what's what's then going to become of that? Because as you said, Nabila, the government has delivered water tanks, but we know that many of the water tanks that have been delivered, they then run out of water and the water isn't refilled or the the water tank is delivered without a stand to stand on so they then can't use the water tank so yeah we, we, we know that there are just story after story about this and it is once again a tale of women and and young girls and you know some of the stories and testimonies that we did collect were from men and young boys as well but I think it's just as I said, a tale of another one of these violations of human rights. So not being able to enjoy the right to safe, reliable and sufficient water and it having a devastating impact on our women and our girls. Is there anything else you want to add about women and and young girls' experiences with this, with the shortage of water? I think just to add on the point of something that you just touched on about, you know, what do we do with the, these stories and how how can they be communicated? And because we can do the jobs of gathering it, but it's about how do people get a see, how do people who are directly affected by this lack of access to resources get a seat directly at the table and it get taken seriously. Because we know that the people who have a seat at the table don't face the lived realities that people on the ground do. And do you think there's an option to kind of tap into the gender stereotype area? Is there some education that we could do around shifting gender stereotypes? Or is this too embedded in in life, in normality, um, particularly in South African culture? Is it just something that unfortunately has to be accepted? I don't think it has to be accepted. I mean, yeah, the the, the answer is no. It has doesn't have to be accepted, but it is. But it is, yeah. It's yeah. about, you know, it goes down to what we didn't touch on a lot is mining in, in water scarce areas or mining where water sources are compromised, right? And it means that when the decision to mine is granted or, or or when negotiations are occurring beforehand, again, who's who is consulted with in communities, right? It means that there there needs to be a shift in who is consulted with. And I I think of this having watched a very a very great uh, documentary recently that was done by a woman um, touching on various. Um, on women's struggles in um, extractive heavy communities in Uganda, in DRC and in South Africa. And, and the common thread that runs through their stories is the fact that they were not consulted within their communities, right? So, I mean, you don't want to speak for people on their behalf and it depends on communities um, who wants how they wish for it to be run, but it means a level of those voices being heard because that seems to be the common thread of why people are in the positions that they currently are in that they were never given the chance to speak and to be taken seriously absolutely 
I mean, you've you've both provided fantastic kind of ways of of working through this and solutions to to this problem. And I know that you mentioned in your article that South Africa has some long term solutions planned. Can you mention a few of these and and are they enough? So some of the long-term solutions that we mentioned in our article came from a study that was done by the Trade and Industrial Policy Strategy. Uh, policy, it was a policy brief that they recently published. And it was mostly recommendations to South Africa. But some of the recommendations that they made, it's some of the stuff that the Department of Water and Sanitation itself has accepted and is working towards and its National Water Master Plan um, in terms of the goals that they have to achieve by 2030. So one of the things that they mentioned as a solution was to invest more in ecological infrastructure in South Africa. So ecological infrastructure is basically services that we get from natural resources and protecting them and ensuring that they're still in their pristine state because that's what we'll survive on. So one of the solutions is to ensure that that is on the table and everybody is working towards that. And then the other one goes to revamping South Africa's water reticulation network. So this goes back to pipes that we use in the transferring of water, making sure that they are up to date, everything is well maintained, there are no leakages, because like I mentioned earlier, through leakages, a lot of the water is lost. And the Department of Water and Sanitation itself has acknowledged that in a, every year they lose at least 1,660 million cubic meters of water. Yeah, I saw that recently. I did so, see that and I was shocked. It's yeah, crazy. It's a lot. But if they fix it, they make sure that they have up-to-date infrastructure, it's also well-maintained, then that means that they're able to preserve a lot of the water and it's able to reach the people who need it. So those are some of the solutions. And I know that I think it was this year, maybe last year, but I believe it's this year, the government released the National Water and Sanitation Master Plan. What do you think about that document? It's a fascinating document. Um, I think it's very aspirational. Yeah. And I, I think that I'm an optimist. <laughs> let me let me say this. Tatinda knows that and she'll, <laughs> she'll, she's laughing because I am an optimist um, because I think that there are goals. The steps are there. Yeah. You know, the steps are yeah. outlined there. They are. Government knows what needs to be done. They know what the problems are. So, for example, they've outlined what the um, contributors are towards a lack of reliable water services, such as the lack of technical skills, institutional capacity and funding, in munis- and they've recognized that the very bodies that are responsible for um, water services and supply municipalities don't, oper- don't operate in an efficient manner. And so they recognize the problems, they've come up with the solutions in the master plan, which, are, which is there in their outcomes in the plan. And they have this great goal of achieving certain percentages of the of a reliable water supply by 2020 or 2030 but you know it goes to the problem of are the right people in place to to implement that other people who who want to implement that they are we still in a, a captured state is the political will there yes is the political happen? will there now we are facing the reality where the dw is 
should be one of the most important departments and the most efficiently run departments because of COVID-19. Sure. Where it, it directly um, affects the reality of our population today, as well as the longevity of our population going forward. So, and they have the building blocks in the National Water and Sanitation Master Plan, but it's about implementation and the will for implementation. Sure. And I think that's such a fundamental part of so many things pertaining to human rights to tender. Yeah, I just wanted to add on Nabila's point on the DWS. Um, in 2016, the CR did a report called Zero Hour. And one of the findings on this report, it focused on the DWS and the DMR, DMRE. But then with regards to the DWS, one of the results that they found was that it's also very largely incapacitated. So that means that they don't have a lot of people, not just to implement some of those things, but to also go where they're supposed to go, say, for example, in mines to check if people actually, people are upholding their water use licenses and the water resources are being used properly. So as a solution, this is something they know, but they don't have the capacity to do it. So as a solution, it could be that government also needs to invest in capacitating the department itself. Because in as much as they know what needs to be done, sometimes they can't do it because they don't have the people for it. Absolutely. Brilliant. As we come to the end of this podcast, I want to reflect on some of the main things that we've discussed today, which I think was about making sure that women are included in the conversation more, that they are given a platform to talk about the the struggles that they face, that communities that are facing these problems are also given the platform and the opportunity to speak, to make sure that these testimonies are heard and listened to by the right people. We've also spoken about the burden that a lack of water places on women in South Africa and young girls from having to stand in long queues to queue for water when there is only one water source, which means missing out on on important time at school, on time for development, waiting in these long queues and traveling to water sources places them in danger, especially if they're collecting water at nighttime. There may be some sexual predators or the opportunity to be taken advantage of that way. The frameworks are there. It's in our constitution. We have everything to make this work, to improve our situation. It's all there. And it's just a matter of, as you say, both of you have said, it's a matter of implementation and political will and getting the right people in to do the right thing because they know what the right thing is. They know what the necessary thing is and just making sure that those steps are followed. Thank you both so much for taking time out of your day to come on this podcast. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you for having us and providing the platform. Thank you for listening to Just Us and the Climate, a production by the Climate Justice Coalition. To find out more about the Coalition and their work to promote climate justice, visit climatejusticecoalition.org. This podcast is made possible thanks to the financial support of the Friedrich Erbit Stiftung. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.